Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conversations with the Co-op. This is where we source questions from the Index Co-op community to gain insights from today's leaders in crypto and DeFi. I'm your host, Crypto Texan, and today we have with us David Hoffman from the Bankless Podcast. David, thanks for being here with us today. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Uh, big fan of the co-op, as you guys know. Yeah, well, we're big fans of Bankless as well, as you probably all know as well. So, do you get interviewed a lot, or are you just mainly the one doing the interviewing? And is this going to be kind of a different uh, switch in roles for you? Uh, I do get interviewed a fair amount, but in comparison as a ratio, I'm definitely doing the interviewing, obviously, with like five podcasts a week. But no, I'm, I'm on other people's podcasts a decent amount of time, and I actually thoroughly enjoy it. Well, good. I'm glad that we can help you out uh, to fulfill some of that enjoyment in your life a little bit more. Uh, so, uh, Cheers. Yeah. Why don't you give us just a little bit of background about you and like how did you get into crypto and DeFi? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll speed run post-college life. Uh, graduated with a degree in psychology. I really liked psychology, this part of psychology that was positive psychology, whereas most of psychology is like how do you make sick people not sick? Positive psychology is like, well, how do you take psychological principles and make normal people happier? Uh, and I thought as like a concept, well, that just scales to more people because most people aren't sick. Most people are normal, you know, normal-ish. Uh, and therefore, if you want to apply psychology for the greatest amount of good, then like you're going to have to go after normal people because everyone can just learn some basic, you know, psychological principles to make themselves feel better. So I got a job in mental health out of college working with kids between the ages of 13 and 18 who had uh, were inpatient uh, mental disorders. I was working on my way to go to grad school for psychology. Uh, then figured out uh, that if you want to make people feel good, you also need to talk about like fitness and exercise because you can't you can't leave out psychological well-being without having fitness and exercise built into it. So instead of going down the uh, world of clinical psychology as a graduate degree, I decided maybe I'll go down through um, physical therapy. Uh, and meanwhile, I was also super interested in nutrition as well. And so really, it's really in order to make somebody feel good and have be happy. Uh, you really need to have the trifecta of psychology, nutrition, and physical movement, right? And so I thought, well, maybe a degree, a doctorate in physical therapy, well, it lets me get a doctorate so I can be a doctor and tell people, and no one can really tell me what to do, and then I'll figure out how to integrate psychology and nutrition after the fact. And so I had this great, ambitious like plan to integrate these very three, three separate things into one career path, which is really centered around like, how do you make the most bang for the least amount of cost across the globe? So really just maximizing effort in, into turning it into just people feeling good. And I, I promise this actually does fit into a through line with crypto once, once I get there. Meanwhile, while on my way into trying to figure out how to get myself into physical therapy school, realize I'm about to go into a bunch of student debt, realize that my GPU can mine this thing called Ethereum for $5 a day-ish, which is like, you know, a pretty substantial amount. Um, and it's like what people cut out when they like stop going to Starbucks every single morning. Uh, so I scaled up this mining operation from one GPU to like 27 in like different corners of my dad's house. And at some point I just had to learn like what the hell this Ethereum thing actually is. And so this was in the second half of 2017. And in that process of figuring out what the hell this Ethereum thing is, I stumble upon this hackathon called ETH Denver. And so reading YouTube, uh, reading white papers, watching YouTube videos, really becoming enamored by this Ethereum thing, decided to make my way out to East Denver with the plan of also going out to tour a physical therapy school at Boulder. But while at the East Denver hackathon, 
just the conversations I had with people, the people I met, the topics being discussed, and overall, like just the vibe and energy and ethos of the conference itself. I just, I didn't go tour physical therapy school. And I made that decision like in that moment at East Denver that I don't really know what this crypto thing is, but I know that I don't want to miss it. Uh, and so it was really East Denver that was my introduction into, into crypto. And I really realized that, well, if you want to really change, if you want to have my, my original vision of my career, which is how do I do the most amount of good for the most amount of people with the most effectively for the least cost? Well, psychology and nutrition and physical therapy, those are all good, but really it's about money and it's about the economy. And like going down the, down the line of like, how do I impact the world the most amount of ways with, with the least amount of cost, like going into the world of crypto and promoting the, the, the world that crypto has to bring can just sweep the board with how much impact you can have. Uh, and so I was just really compelled by that and by that vision. And so as soon as I got back from East Denver, I started applying for crypto drops and started as like a blog writer community manager for this ICO agency that later blew up uh, and found found hopped around various jobs throughout the bear market until I started Bankless with Ryan. In we started the Bankless podcast at the start of 2020 and then started Bankless the company in September of 2020. Yeah, wow. So what did your dad think when you, or what ah. did your parents think in general when you just said, hey, you know, you know, to get my doctorate, maybe not. I'm just going to try this new crazy thing called Ethereum and see if I can make a living doing this. Like, what was their reaction to that? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I've always been, like, finding these weird things to be interested by. Uh, and so for them, I think it was just, like, another new thing that interested me. Um, and at the, at the same time of me getting into Ethereum, I was also just getting into the world of, like, personal savings and investing in the stock market. And so it was really just an ex- extension of that. I had built a computer before, so building my own mining machines wasn't new. It was just like, you know, building a very new type of computer. That was the new part. It was, it was kind of just like a family joke for a while. It was like, oh, David's like heating his dad's house with these mining computers, and we're not, they're not paying a cent of, of, for like heating bills instead of they're just like, you know, having these mining computers run. It was just, it was kind of, kind of just like a family anomaly for a little bit uh, until it actually turned into a real career, and then it was something else. Wow. And so there seems to be this little bit that you and Ryan have that y'all have never met in real life. Yeah. Is that true still? That is 100% true, sir. Yep. So I guess how how did you and Ryan meet and what, I guess, influenced y'all to start the Bankless podcast? Yeah, it was just us two slowly coming together over a large amount of time. Uh, Ryan first got introduced to me from the articles that I was writing that I was publishing on my own medium. Uh, I was writing a lot about MakerDAO at the time, really exploring this brand new concept of tokenomics and and like a central bank, but decentralized. And overall, Ryan was just like reading my stuff. Uh, And then I was getting into the world of Twitter and Ryan already had a very big Twitter following. So naturally, he was a, a... core person to follow in the crypto Twitter sphere bear market of 2018, 2019. Uh, and so I was reading his tweets. He was reading my articles. There's one time where Medium actually uh, banned or not banned, but like I kind of banned as I like blocked all my stuff and like bounced me from the platform. It turns out it was just like a rogue computer bot thinking I was just like linking. I was putting too many links in my articles and they, it just accidentally banned me. But I, I made a big deal of it on Twitter. It's like, oh, this is why we need decentralization. I just got deplatformed, blah, 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 blah. Ryan retweeted it saying, hey, I actually really value David's writings. Like, what the hell, Medium? Again, turns out it was just like a total error, but like it was good for like engagement. <laughs> and that's, that's when I knew that this guy, Ryan, was reading my stuff. And then eventually I wrote this um, 
did my triple point asset piece, uh, which got published on the Defiant. Uh, and then Ryan, as soon as that piece went out, he DM'd me. I was like, hey, your next piece I wanted for Bankless because he had started the Bankless newsletter. Uh, and so after talking with Ryan, we, I, we just realized that we had enough like alignment where I could use his newsletter as distribution for my articles. And I had generated my own like following behind my articles by this point as well. So it was kind of like a pseudo merge where I would just de- dedicate all my illustri- uh, publications to the Bankless newsletter. And after that started, I was like, Ryan, you should also start the Bankless podcast. Like, you know, because I had my own podcast at the time called POV Crypto. And so I was DMing Ryan, like, at least like three or four times saying, like, Ryan, you should start the Bankless podcast. Like, why haven't you done that yet? And he was like, nah, nah, I don't want to do that. That's not a good idea. Uh, And at some point in time, I was like, Ryan, we should start the Bankless podcast. You just show up. I'll edit the damn thing. And then we'll just start the Bankless podcast. And that was what convinced him. Uh, and so after just like me dedicating my writing to the newsletter, he hopped into the Zoom and started doing um, uh, podcasting with me. Uh, and after six months uh, of just like getting to know the guy over Zoom during COVID, things just worked out. So we brought up the subject of actually starting me leaving my my job at the time and going full time bankless and had the uh, the splitting the pie conversation. And that was pretty easy as far as conversations go. And then all of a sudden, boom, we have a company. Well, wow, that's pretty interesting that it was like it was your persistence of mm-hmm. DMing Ryan over and over again, I guess, that I don't know, just spurred this great thing that a lot of people in the space uh, really cherish. And I, you've just had like such exponential growth in Twitter followers and, and YouTube subscribers, you know, thanks to the Bankless podcast, you know. Have you found it difficult at all to manage that growth at times? And like, how do you manage, you know, like Telegram, Discord, Twitter, YouTube, you know, et cetera? Like, is that pretty overwhelming at times or do you feel like you've found a way to, to manage all of that? My way of managing all of that is like doing just a lot of ignoring. Like there's a lot of emails I don't answer. There's a ton of Twitter DMs I don't answer. I just don't have enough time in the day. So it's really just focused on just like what is the next show that's ahead of me? Like Thursday mornings, it's the weekly roll up. Uh, Tuesday mornings, it's the layer zero. Um, so, like, w- the growth has been a ton of fun to watch. We also have a very talented team behind us. We have uh, Luke, our content operations guy, that's responsible for all, like, the video editing and the why the YouTube is is what it is. We've got Lucas behind the newsletter. Uh, we have a fantastic audio engineer. Uh, and it's really about part of the growth, being able to capture this growth is really finding these very key individuals that can wear a lot of hats, like like how Ryan and I do, I'm really just streamlining the whole content production capacity behind it. So like it, it, sometimes it's a little overwhelming in sense like I never really expected to have 100,000 Twitter followers, but like I, I fucking love it. Like it's it's it, uh, Twitter, crypto Twitter is like one of the most fun places to be, even though a lot of people find it exhausting. The, the cool the, one of the reasons why I don't find it so crazily overwhelming is Bankless has a very specific vision and ethos for what the crypto world is. Uh, and the fact that we have this very committed, we're a thesis-driven media company, and we just believe in the concepts of decentralization and true banklessness and all the all the merits about what crypto is. And the, the fact that we've actually been able to surround a media organization around these ethos and then actually have it be successful is like one of the most, in my mind, like immaculate things about this world. Like you, usually you don't see people that lead with like morals and ethos first like actually have outsized success. Like usually it's the the hyper capitalists that went out, right? 
um, the cutthroat capitalism. But having just like I'm just extremely humbled by the fact that we can make a, a thesis driven media company that is tries to convince everyone to stay true to the values of crypto and then actually have that be successful. Uh, and so when I when we see like the Bankless Twitter account and and go past a hundred thousand uh, followers and the Bankless YouTube go past a hundred thousand followers, it actually just kind of re uh, reinstalls my faith in humanity that there there are a lot of people out there that can be convinced to lead crypto with these values and ethos and people can get behind that message and vision and so while sometimes the it, the sheer numbers are a little bit overwhelming I'm just more of just like very very happy that that's even possible. Yeah, and I think that sounds fitting for y'all to be a, a thesis-driven, I guess, media organization is what I'm going to call you, because it was originally, like you said, that triple point asset thesis that you that you wrote that it mm-hmm. kind of spurred this whole uh, bankless podcast, bankless media conglomerate uh, to go. And what from that triple point crypto asset thesis? do you think has transferred or translated the most into what y'all are trying to do at Bankless? Yeah, a lot of people really resonate with the protocol sync thesis, uh, which Ryan Ryan was the original brain, uh, that's a, a, an original brainchild of, of, um, of Ryan's, but then I, I was the one that took the thought into a much more longer form post and actually like uh, end and explained that the long-term vision of Ethereum is supposed to be a system for public goods. We've never had this credibly neutral system that protects public goods outside of governments and governments come with their own baggage. Um, And really that, again, the claim is that public goods find themselves like deep, deepest down in the protocol stack of Ethereum. And why Ethereum is so magical is that creates a, a system for fostering and growing and maintaining these public goods and protecting them so that public goods don't turn into captured private goods. And a lot of people have built their their funds and their applications with being guided by this thesis, uh, which, uh, again, like it's kind of like what the legacy of Bankless is, is really coming up with these theses about why crypto is so great and then promoting them and actually convincing people to base their their company or their fund or their project on these theses. Hopefully the legacy of Bankless is, is one that of... People just remember us as like steering crypto, which is an inherently a neutral technology, and making sure that it ends up on the good side rather than the evil side. Because in my mind, if we end up just as like a Binance smart chain future, then you know this neutral technology, which is crypto, can be steered in the direction of just like more bankerism and evil. Um, yeah, yeah, and I mean through all this, you also y'all developed the bankless DAO and like, how did that come about and why did you feel like that was important to have a DAO to complement what y'all are doing on the, the podcast and media side? Yeah. The bankless DAO was really formed just out of um, demand by the bankless listeners. Um, it wasn't really in my mind or Ryan's vision to, to build a DAO, but uh, it kind of just made sense largely in the sense that Ryan and I, we don't want Bankless LLC to be this massive media company. Like, we don't want to turn it into a coin desk or a block or like a, you know, a Rolling Stone or Fortune or whatever. Like, we don't really want this to be a big company that grows and grows and grows forever. We, we very much enjoy just like only bringing on the, you know, a, a very small handful of very skilled people and keeping it very small. But at the same time, so many would, people would reach out to me or Ryan in, in DMs and be like, hey, I love what you guys are doing. How can I help contribute? I want to help you know, grow the bankless message. And we don't want to 
be responsible for a crazy amount of salaries. We don't really have that CEO mindset. Neither of us do. But we still had this pool of people that had the energy to contribute to the bankless revolution. So we saw an opportunity to take the bankless brand and like give it to the community, which is what the DAO really is. And so we just collected a bunch of Ethereum addresses from our most aligned individuals uh, and airdropped them some tokens and basically bestowed legitimacy on this token as the bankless token that we instantiate the brand into. And now the bankless DAO is just like, it's like our DAO equivalent, right? It's like we have the centralized and the decentralized version of, of Bankless, where the centralized version of Bankless has me and Ryan, and the decentralized version of Bankless is the DAO. Um, and so it really is a vehicle for people that truly do have that energy and interest in promoting the vision of Bankless. It gives them a vehicle to express that interest. Uh, and it also does it in a way where, like, Brian and I aren't actually the leaders, right? We don't want the DAO to be like created in our own vision. So like, as far as me and Ryan's involvement in the DAO, we were actually like one of the the two least active members of the DAO, mainly because we're so damn busy at Bankless, but also just because like we want to see what the DAO can turn into of its own accord and see what happens if like the Bankless brand didn't have leaders, what would happen with it? Yeah. And I I can only speak very, very highly of the people that I have met and worked with uh, at the Bankless DAO. And I met two of them in person. I met uh, Frog Monkey and Air Bear. I think it's Air Bear. I forget how you say that. And then you and I met at Mainnet right. too, which was also pretty cool. Yeah. But I think that kind of goes to also what you said uh, earlier about just going to conferences and the the energy there. Because Mainnet was my first crypto-related conference. And just hearing the conversations and all the innovation that's going on there, it... um. I don't know. It's just, it's very inspiring and it's very exciting. And it makes you just want to go all in on crypto and just getting to see these people that you interact with on a daily basis on Twitter and discord and telegram, and then just meeting them in real life. It's a, it's a pretty interesting experience. And I can see why that would be one of the drivers that would have pushed you to go full-time Ethereum. And uh, were you always full-time Ethereum or did you I know that you had a tweet a few months ago that just said, I don't own any Bitcoin, which is a fun, <laughs> which is a fun tweet. Um, but did you ever in the past, and I don't know, did you ever go down like a Cardano or like a, an, or any other layer yeah. one or, or rabbit hole? Or did you ever hold those? And what kind of drove you to being mainly Ethereum? Yeah, uh, Ethereum captured my attention first and foremost. Like I knew about Bitcoin um, before I knew about Ethereum, but Bitcoin really didn't uh, captivate me. Kind of understood the basic principles of it, like oh, you don't need to have banks, scarcity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it really wasn't until I captured saw Ethereum and like under, began to understand the concept of arbitrary code inside of a blockchain, where I really had the aha moment that drew me into crypto. Uh, I have owned Bitcoin before, but if you want to put this into a scale of time. 99% of my time I've owned crypto, I have not owned Bitcoin. And so like, yeah, like I've, I've owned it before. There's one time I actually owned it on my own, like self-custody method. Other times I've just used it when I was trading in 2017 because you needed Bitcoin at the time. So really like effectively I've owned Bitcoin for effectively 0% of my life, even though I, sometimes I actually have purchased it and touched it. Um, I did go, like I did own EOS at some point in time during 2017 or 2018 because I was compelled by the whole like low fee version of smart contracts. But again, like that was very short lived. That was before I kind of understood that if you have low fees, you don't have public goods. 
uh, for some uh, for topics that are kind of maybe outside of the scope of this conversation. And so, like, I did open, like, I was trying to have an open mind with EOS uh, back in 2017, 2018. Uh, was compelled by, like, oh, yeah, there's all these use cases of crypto that might not need any fees. But it didn't really last long. And I just, I always find myself, like, gravitating back to Ethereum at the end of the day. Uh, and, and one of the main reasons for that is uh, specifically the people. There were, were people that I would watch YouTube videos of or watch talks of back in 2017, 2018, while I was trying to wrap my head around things. And I, I came into the world of 2017, 2018, which was a ton of noise. And one of the reasons, one of the ways that I found signal through that noise is I think I'm a pretty good judge of character. And I would listen to people like Carl Florsch and, um, and David Knott and a few other of these like early Ethereum researchers. And I would listen to what they would say, how they would say things and what they illustrated as their priorities, really illustrating like what they cared about. And no one outside of Ethereum was really talking about prioritization of public goods as like their their number one like driver. Uh, and so a lot of just the ethos that these people that I found that were all building on Ethereum are the ethos that I personally resonated with. Uh, and so like not only Ethereum as a technology was extremely captivating, but it was also captivating the attention of people that I also came to really really respect. And so that's kind of where like people will call me like an ETH maxi is like, well, sure, all my friends are here and all the people that I respect are here. And so like, yeah, like all the people that care about the same values and visions that I have for the world find themselves on Ethereum. So that's kind of driven my focus to kind of only stick to the Ethereum ecosystem. Yeah, sure. That makes sense to me. But do you do you see any promise in any non-EVM based chain long term or even short term? Uh, well, it depends on what you mean by success. Like, do I see promise in non-Ethereum uh, chains that have compromised on decentralization in order to support public goods? I think that's fundamentally at, at odds. You can't have a system that has compromised on decentralization also supporting public goods. That's like oil, oil and water. Now, can like if you, you ask me, like, does something like Solana? have product market fit in a, is sufficiently enough to the point where the actual soul token will have reasonable economic value going forward. Yeah, I, I totally see that world. There's a, there's a decent portion of the population that might never, ever care about decentralization. And so maybe they don't, like, we all know, maybe this is maybe an apples to oranges comparison, but, like, we all use Facebook and Twitter, and we all use these, like, Web2 platforms that treat us like products, regardless of the, even though that we know that. And so there's likely going to be a lot of people who use Solana, even though the same kind of principle uh, applies, where you're, you are kind of the product of Solana as, as the user. The differences between Web 2 and Web 3 is like we actually have the alternative now in, uh, where we didn't in Web 2, where like you actually can use a system where you are not the product, but you are instead the, the, uh, the, the client. But there's, I think there's going to be a decent amount of people in the world that just don't care about that dynamic and they just want to use whatever thing feels best for them. And Solana could probably capture a decent amount of market share that way. Yeah. And then what about uh, something like Avalanche as well, where it's, it's you know, they have the C chain and, and it kind of reminds me of maybe not Polygon in a way, but a, a little bit in which they have yeah. different chains. You know, they've got like their main, sh their contract, wait, C chain is their contract chain. But any anything that bridges over to Ethereum being EVM compatible, what are your thoughts on those? Yeah, as soon as you commit to EVM compatibility, you commit to competing with every single rollup that ever exists on Ethereum. 
And rollups will always be able to outperform other chains on an execution basis, no matter what. That's what the nature of a rollup is. Uh, and so I recently tweeted out not too long ago, like, every L1 Ethereum killer is in a game of chicken to roll themselves up on Ethereum, and whoever does that first basically wins because of all the benefits that it, it, you get with aligning with Ethereum's network effects. Uh, obviously, the people of Solana and Avalanche and Binance Smart Chain all scoffed at that, but I still believe it. Um, if you're going to be an EVM-compatible L1, not only do you have to compete with Ethereum, but you have to compete with every single Ethereum rollup, which are, is also EVM-compatible. Eventually, those... I mean, I already think we're at this case at, at this point, but like the network effects are going to be too much to compete with. If you want to go from Avalanche to Ethereum or to an Ethereum L2, you're going to have to hop across a multi-sig bridge or just a decentralized exchange, and you're going to be meaningfully cut off from all of the uh, economic energy that's going around on Ethereum at large. Uh, so as soon as you commit to being EVM compatible, you commit to competing with everything about Ethereum. And that's just too tall of an order these days. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I know that you've said that on your on your podcast that the future is roll-ups and the future is layer twos. And right now we have, you know, we Arbitrum Optimism. Uh, what are your thoughts on ZK Sync and do you see, like, how is the competition between those three going to be in your mind? Yeah, each one fills out its own niche, right? Um, everyone says that ZK Sync is the gold standard. What I'm not getting signal on is, like, all the ZK Sync people are like, oh, my God, ZK Sync is, like, three months away before total EVM, like, compatibility. It's three months away from full, like, DeFi on ZK Sync. Whereas, like, the optimistic roll-up people are, like, ZK Sync is like three to five years away. Uh, and like, obviously, everyone is like, has their own biases. Um, from what I understand, the ZK uh, Sync and ZK rollups just have a ton more infrastructure that they need to build in order to be anywhere close to the same level of infrastructure that's building on basic, basic, the basic EVM. And that's really the optimism's, uh, optimism's uh, big competitive advantage is optimism specifically is going after EVM equivalents, not just EVM compatibility. What that means is that the optimistic uh, optimisms, optimistic layer twos, are far closer to actually working on the Ethereum L1 than any other rollup possible. And th there's a there's this famous EVM inside of an EVM problem, where like all optimistic rollups are are fighting that issue, right? Both Arbitrum and Optimism have to deal with like they they are running an EVM on top of their rollup, but their rollup settles inside of the VEVM on the layer one. So there's this EVM inside of an EVM problem. How do you make a virtual machine inside of a virtual machine? Um, Optimism or Arbitrum has solved this problem just by like brute forcing a bunch of code and labor into maintaining compatibility. Um, but what that changes is like all the infrastructure around what it means to deploy code on Arbitrum also changes. You have the compilers, you have the two of the dev tooling environments. Everything everything has to be kind of rewritten. Optimism is going for this uh, EVM equivalence, which means that there's like a, what they call a minimum difference between the layer one EVM and the layer two EVM uh, to the point where the idea is that if you can deploy something on the layer one, you can just immediately deploy it on the layer two. And none of the infrastructure has to be rewritten. Like the, the node infrastructure for doing running an optimism node is the same as running a, a geth node on Ethereum. All, all the compilers, the dev environments, all the things I'm not familiar with because I'm not a dev. Um, all that stuff actually doesn't need to change or it just needs to change very, very little. And so that kind of lends itself to optimism actually being able to like blossom out 
thousands and thousands of optimistic rollups and having them tr very trivially spun out because of just the nature of EVM equivalents. Like it is basically um, like settling on the EVM on the L1. And so they actually call um, this, this model as like not layer two, but layer 1.5, just because it has this very intrinsic link to the L1 itself. So yeah, those, those are how I like compartmentalize all the different rollups. Yeah, and I, I definitely think that layer two adoption is definitely the, the future uh, for Ethereum, and that's how we get retail involved. But it's, you know, it's so difficult now. Like, if I try to onboard some of my friends, it's like, yeah, you know, you buy Ethereum on Coinbase, you transfer it to your MetaMask wallet, and then you've got to go over, you know, the Polygon or the Arbitrum or the Optimism Bridge uh, to get to the lower fee environment. And that's just two or three too many steps. And so what do you think that we need to do just to further drive that adoption? Like, how do we make that easier in your mind? I think the world of crypto and crypto innovation and overall just user experience is going to absolutely explode as soon as all of these centralized exchanges, all these on-ramps, give off-ramps to users' select rollups of choice. Like, where do you want to be dropped off? Do you want to be dropped off on Arbitrum? Do you want to be dropped off on Optimism, ZK Sync? Do you want to be dropped off on DYDX? So I envision a world where, like, you have your or your USDC inside of Coinbase, and when you hit that withdrawal button, there's, like, a drop-down menu where you can just select your specific L2. Like, send me to DYDX. I want to take the bus to DYDX. I want to take the bus to, to Optimism. And so, like increasingly as gas fees go up and up and up drop having these centralized exchanges drop people off on the ethereum l1 that's like dropping somebody off in the middle of manhattan with like no phone and no cash and no wallet right like they're 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 just effed right they can't do anything just it's too hostile of a place to have no infrastructure around you and so like it, it, the l1 is not meant for humans over the long term uh and so as soon as users can be dropped off on the L2s and start to begin to do like crypto stuff with just like a hundred USDC and being able to pay gas fees that are 10 cents or less, well, all of a sudden, like adoption of these L2 applications are going to explode. The incentive to actually build on these L2s is going to only go up and the liquidity on the L2s is going to go up. And that means the liquidity cross L2s is going to go up with things like hop and across and connect. Uh, all these cross-L2 cross liquidity infrastructures. Uh, and so really we need all these centralized exchanges to stop dropping people off in a place that's not meant for them. They're supposed to go on the L2s. Uh, and as soon as that happened, I think I think that really the L2 ecosystem Ethereum is going to absolutely skyrocket. Yeah, and I saw today that Binance is about to start allowing for withdrawals to Arbitrum, which is very... Oh, really? That's fantastic. Yeah, I saw that today. And then, gosh, well, I don't know what... what uh, Brian Armstrong is dragging his feet on uh, for Coinbase. I know y'all interviewed him uh, not that long ago, but I don't think he really mentioned uh, that specifically. But yeah, I mean, we, we did ask him, like, "Hey, Brian, we I gave him the same pitch, like, Brian, like Coinbase needs to drop people off on the L two, and he was like, we know we're working on it. And that's what he said. Well, that's that's better than nothing, I guess. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, my friends are like, I I can't do Ethereum; it's too expensive. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's it, it's hard to explain to people that that's a good thing, right? Because when it comes down to it, like every transaction that you perform is just data and there's only so much data that you can fit inside of a block and people have right. to pay more to get into that block and it, people are willing to pay that high amount of money because they believe, you know, that means the market believes in the security of the blockchain that is Ethereum. And yeah, I, we need to move to the second layer. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. So 
let's move on to DeFi because I think you know initially the Bankless podcast was mainly focusing on yes, like Ethereum and, and blockchain, but mainly like DeFi and like actually making people bankless. So, what are some cool new DeFi projects that you kind of have your eye on right now? Hmm. Mm, okay. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, I think Lyra, which I haven't used yet, or, or Lyra, which is options on Ethereum. Uh, I, th- I believe they're on. Yeah, they're on Optimism. De- decentralized options marketplaces, I think, are an unsolved problem, and I'm hoping something like Lyra can really allow for on-chain. Uh, options, which I think is incredibly, like everyone knows that option markets are huge. We haven't figured out how to get those on chain yet. Uh, another DeFi protocol, which uh, me and Ryan are advisors for that I think is really, really cool is uh, TracerDAO. TracerDAO is a perpetuals protocol, but with a pretty cool twist where um, kind of like how Uniswap has liquidity pools and DYDX has perpetual swaps, TracerDAO has perpetual pools. Uh, and so you can actually in tokenize leverage positions, like 2x long ETH or, or 2x short ETH. But really the idea behind TracerDAO is that you can bring any Oracle into TracerDAO and they can make a perpetual pool off of it. So you can not only do Ether, but you can also do like oil, kind of like synthetics. But not only that, like you could also do CryptoPunks. You know, like you could make a, so long as you can make an Oracle for something, you could start to make perpetual markets around it. And so I think when the metaverse comes and, you know, it's coming in different ways, shapes and forms, we want the metaverse to employ like a billion people, right? But the metaverse is going to be built on crypto, and crypto is very volatile. While like our DeFi applications are very secure, at least the older ones are, doesn't change the fact that these assets are super volatile. So if we want people to like have an income based off of the metaverse, however they want to do it, whether it's playing games in Axie or playing games in Alluvium or just doing metaverse things, however this happens... In order to have like financial stability for this to actually be like a long-term sustainable endeavor, they, people need to manage risk. And so, say, say for example, you're like a metaverse worker, and you by that I mean you found you find this like legendary sword, and it's like your family's heirloom, right? Like it's a taxi medallion. This legendary sword allows you to grind through this game and generate like capture in-game gold, which you can sell on Uniswap for USDC, and that can pay your bills in your third-world country. Well, that means like you, with the sword that you have, that that is like your family's like cash cow, right? Like that's like if you were in like medieval like Europe and you had like a single cow, like your that cow really really matters for your family's livelihood, uh, and so you need to really protect that cow. If you have a sword in this game and like it's the, your revenue generating asset, you need that that asset doesn't go down in value because if you lose that sword, like that's your family's value, right? So like in theory, you could make an Oracle around some certain like classification of goods that exist in this game that you are grinding in to protect against the value of your short of your sword, like decreasing in value. And you could do that through TracerDAO because all you need is an Oracle. And so really it, it takes metaverse volatility and turns it into like stable foundation and for, for the metaverse to like employ a, a bajillion people. And then the idea is that TracerDAO takes these lessons that they've learned and then starts applying them to the real world, like real world water markets or, you know, grain markets in in, just, in, uh, in continents or countries that just don't have financial services. Uh, so I think TracerDAO is pretty cool. Oh, interesting. And so are you uh, an owner of the DeFi Pulse Index? You know, I have to ask this. Uh, I am currently not an owner of the DeFi, DeFi Pulse Index now. <laughs> Oh, is that why? So now I need to ask about your uh, DPI ETH uh, prediction for the upcoming year. Right. Oh, gosh. Uh, okay, so <laughs> I, I 
in trying to always like cross two things. One is in the same way that I think that uh, ETFs and indexes, like the S and P, is just an index of crypto of uh, a legacy equity assets, right? It, it, it's up only versus the dollar, and like the narrative is that like, well, actually, the dollar is being printed, and so really the dollar is just going down versus equities, just because the dollar is losing value over time. Really, really, the S and P five hundred is is. The devaluation, illustrating the devaluation of the dollar, not necessarily the increase of the value of some of these companies. I mean, both are, both are really happening. And I think you can actually apply that to Ether and basically every other DeFi token, but in reverse, where Ether is actually going to be really hard to keep up with by the nature of what it is. If you issue a token on Ethereum, the value of that token flows back down towards Ether, the asset, at least a little bit. But Ether, the asset growing in value, doesn't necessarily flow back to the value of all tokens that exist on top of Ethereum. So it's kind of like this one-way flow. So the more and more tokens that get added to Ethereum, the more valuable Ether comes. And so it really captures all that value. So where like Ether, I think where, where the S&P is up only versus the dollar, I think Ether is up only versus a generalized basket of DeFi currencies. Now, will there be a DeFi season? I sure hope so, because I really like DeFi seasons. They feel, it feels like home. And anytime somebody says to you, like, it's going to, one inside of the financial market is down only versus another side of the financial market. Well, in the short term, that person can definitely be proven wrong. Over the long term, I do think that's right, though, where Ether is kind of up only versus everything. But I, do, I would sure like to, a reversal of that ETH DPI ratio. That would be, that would be nice to see. Yeah, I I probably could have guessed based on you know everything that you've said on the podcast and in your writings that that would be the answer that you have. However, I, I just I you know I know that you're not one to spend your ETH very lightly. Uh, however, you did spend your ETH to buy that CryptoPunk. So, mm-hmm. uh, what convinced you to buy that CryptoPunk, and why do you think people should care about NFTs? Mm, yeah, sure. Um, I think and, uh, uh, NFT skeptics are abound these days, as we all know. And I, I think the system of how this really works is that like everyone starts skeptical on NFTs, and then they discover an NFT that they all of a sudden really, really like. Um, I, I talked about this when I talked about uh, the SpongeBob NFT, which is coming out of Viacom sometime in the future. Also, South Park NFTs. Like, I'm a huge SpongeBob fan. Like, that was my Saturday morning cartoons, and like. I could imagine a world where I'm this NFT skeptical person, but then I see the SpongeBob NFT. And because so many people have spent so much money on other NFTs, like it kind of is legitimizing just like the sheer volume of money that people are paying for NFTs. And all of a sudden, some NFT comes around in your sphere and you that's an NFT that you really, really resonate with. And all of a sudden, you get convinced by it, right? Like, oh, I don't care about any other NFT, but I do care about that one. So I will cough up like $10,000 for that NFT. I think that's how NFTs work, right? Like you're skeptical on them until you actually find something that you truly want. With regards to the the CryptoPunk, the reason why I FOMO'd into the CryptoPunk was because I was increasingly becoming aware of like the brand of just like ETH, long-term ETH OG bulls also have CryptoPunks. And that's definitely a brand that I definitely want for myself. (laughs) So... I was perusing the the Larva Labs website just trying to see like which CryptoPunk I wanted to buy. They were all super expensive. And at some time I, I noticed that other people were also doing this. And so I just decided to pull the trigger and buy CryptoPunk. This was in the floor of CryptoPunks, which was around like 20 ETH. And four hours later is when this, the, the big floor got swept. People thought it was by three hours capital, but turns out it wasn't. I mean, it was by somebody else. 
Uh, and literally over the next two days, the floor of CryptoPunks went from like 20 to 60 ETH. And I was like, oh, wow, that's fantastic. That of all the trades I've ever done, it's the most fantastic timing. Extremely, extremely lucky. And for the answer is just like, everyone has their own like NFT that will resonate with them. And having a CryptoPunk is like, I wouldn't have resonated with it if it didn't have the brand of like all the OG Ethereum people also have CryptoPunks. And I kind of want to consider myself a part of that cohort. So that's the one that just resonated with me. Yeah, that makes sense too. Yeah, it's it's definitely feels like a like a status symbol or okay, 100%. Or like you said like for branding too, you know, like DC investor, like I could recognize, you know, I could see his crypto punk and know that like oh, that's DC investor or yeah. you know, punk is it 2569 or or something like mm-hmm. that? Yeah. I mean, same same way. Yeah, you uh, don't even know the numbers, but you know the CryptoPunk, right? Yeah, I know exactly. Yeah, I know exactly what it looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, yeah, I think it's huge for branding too, I, and that makes perfect sense. And when I explain it to people, I kind of say like, you know, this is your brand, verifiably provable that you own it on chain, and it, that starts to help a little bit. But yeah, it, it still takes some time to get some normies, I guess, get them to wrap their heads around it. Yeah, let's move on to just some other just kind of random questions. Uh, let's talk about some of the guests that you've had on the Bankless podcast? Like, what are some of the guests that y'all have had on where you're just like, wow, I can't believe that this person is coming on our show? Uh, Andrew Yang was definitely the most recent one. Um, That was, like, I volunteered for the Andrew Yang campaign uh, even before starting Bankless. And so actually having the man himself on the podcast was was pretty damn cool. Uh, So that that was actually, like, if you told me that I was getting Andrew Yang on the podcast, like, a year ago, I, I, like, wouldn't believe you. I'd have been, like, way too much of a reach. Um, Having Kathy Wood on there was also pretty humbling as well. The cool thing about crypto is that, if you believe in what crypto is, is that everyone eventually will come to crypto. So all you have to do, even, like, when crypto is very, very small, all you had to do is have, like, one of the leading podcasts out there. And as soon as crypto becomes big... Well, then all the big people of the world who now need to pay attention to crypto, they only have so many podcasts to go to, right? And so, like, Bankless, by comparison to the rest of the world's podcasts, probably not all that big, but it's one of the biggest podcasts in crypto. And so as soon as people, as soon as the big names of the world come to crypto, like, well, they kind of got to go to Bankless because, like, where else are they going to go? I mean, there's other podcasts as well, but again, there's not that many of them. Uh, and so it, it's been fun just like collecting some of these big names like um, Mark Cuban was another one that just like, well, if they're going to come talk to crypto people, like you got to you got to basically got to go on a podcast and like how many other podcasts are you going to look at before you end up on Bankless? Yeah, absolutely. And I think Kathy Wood is probably one of my favorite ones that y'all did. I mean, she oh, really? she, she made me so bullish. Just yeah, in she's general. Yeah, it's great. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I love the Mark Cuban one too because uh, I'm actually from Dallas, so uh, big Mavs fan. Huh. So yeah, nice. that was that nice. was an awesome one. So what are what are some guests that you would really like to get on, but you haven't really made that connection yet? Uh, we actually are looking for Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, he comes on podcasts now, apparently, and so we want to get him on to talk about Meta uh, and pick his brain about like what his plans are for incorporating crypto into Meta. Uh, so that, that's definitely on the top of the list. The other one we really, really want is the uh, CEO of Discord. Uh, we don't really know if he wants to talk to crypto people right now. I don't know if you guys know saw the drama that all happened where he teased in a, an Ethereum integration and then he just got bullied by all the non-crypto, the crypto haters of the world and then had to like retract that interest. 
so I definitely want to talk to the, the CEO of, of Discord. We have Alexis Ohanian from Reddit coming on in the, in the future, so that'll be pretty cool. Gosh, who else? Um, eventually, we, def- we definitely want Jack Dorsey on, but he's kind of like a Bitcoin maxi, so I don't really, I'm not holding my breath out on that one. There's probably a few others I can't really think of at the moment. Oh, Gary Gensler. We also definitely want Gary Gensler <laughs> on the show, but again, I don't think no. he's going to be like coming on to uh, crypto native media anytime soon. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the Gary Gensler one's probably going to happen either, but I mean, it would be great. I would love, I would tune into that. I've listened to it three times probably. Um, mm. So do you keep track of like where y'all stand, like in terms of crypto podcasts? Like where, where do y'all rank? Are y'all number one? I don't have any numbers because again, like all these numbers are private. Like I don't know Lorishin's downloads. I, um, I actually, Peter McCormack does list off his downloads, but he's kind of like a Bitcoin only podcast. I don't really know if you can consider that all of crypto. Let me look up Peter McCormick's uh, download numbers, but I think we might be number one. Uh, we're, we're crossing over a million downloads a month at this point, which is pretty pretty damn crazy. And that's not even on the YouTube. So I, I, again, I don't really know the numbers of other podcasts, but I think as far as like reach and following, I'm pretty sure we're definitely number one. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I actually listen to Peter McCormack's podcast pretty regularly, uh, along with y'all's, just to get some like differenting opinions. But he's actually started to lessen his stance a little bit more of just being a, a Bitcoin maxi, which has been pretty interesting to see. He's been getting a lot of hate on Twitter for that as well, but I just thought that was kind of interesting to point out. So, yeah, just some couple other questions. I know you're looking up Peter McCormack's numbers, but just interject if you find them. Um, but what are your thoughts also kind of moving back into DeFi, like on Ave Arc? and Compound Treasury, bringing in institutional investors, but also KYC to DeFi. Like, do you really consider that DeFi if there's that KYC uh, aspect to it? And what are your thoughts on those two programs from those two protocols? Yeah, sure. It's certainly not like um, censorship resistant, right? Because if you have to submit some sort of KYC, then it's not censorship resistant. So we're losing some of the properties that make DeFi DeFi. But really what, what's going on in my mind is that um, there's these like gated ecosystems that all the institutions can play in. And then there will be people that uh, are part of those institutions that trade on the institutional like silos where, you know, the individuals can't go. But then they, they get that arbitrage between the DeFi, the true DeFi and institutional DeFi. And so like. We're, well, we're kind of used towards like all these financial services not being accessible in the TradFi world. Well, what, what's going to happen is the limitations of a regulation of a, of a centralized company, they actually can't play in DeFi where the true products are. So it's really more about like where is the true power lie? And the power doesn't lie in like the gated version of DeFi. The power lies in DeFi. Uh, and so it's actually the individuals that have the ability to access all of the merits of DeFi. And it's the institutions that are hamstrung by regulation rather than the inverse, where DeFi is really an individual first phenomenon. And like individuals, the reason why institutions have to have these siloed environments is because of they actually need to be compliant and, and, uh, and adhere to regulation. Individuals don't have that. So in the world of DeFi, it's actually hamstringing to the institutions, not to the individuals. So it's not, I don't really think we should be looking at like Ave Arc or Compound Institutional, like trying to peer over the wall and like see what they're up to. 
like it's a bummer to be in there. It's limiting to be in there. Like DeFi is the true experience. That is where like the full power of permissionless finance gets unleashed. Uh, I don't think we should be envious about like not being able to be allowed into Ave Arc. Uh, it's literally just like DeFi on training wheels. Yeah, that's a great take. I haven't really thought of it like that. And yeah, you know, I talked to Stani about that a little bit when he was on. And yeah, I mean, yeah, that that makes perfect sense to me. Um, so let's talk about Dave Dow. What's it like? <laughs> what's it like to be a David in and to be able to be in Dave Dow? Dave Dow is just absolutely the best Dow on the face of this planet. There's like over 300 Davids inside of the Dave Dow Discord. And it's just a fucking hilarious, excuse my language, it's a hilarious place just because of this sheer absurdity of what it is. Like we have the statue of David as like the Discord uh, uh, thumbnail. Uh, let me check how many how many Davids are in there right now. Uh, uh, I, I can't figure it out. Anyways, there's a lot of Daves. 247, 247 Daves. And it's just like all the Daves say like, hey, Dave, I'm David. Nice to meet you, Dave. Like it's just Daves everywhere. And like the point of Dave Dow is not just a joke. The idea is that like if you can make a Dow around like the f- your first name, you can make a Dow about anything. And so it's more in the same way that like Amin Soleimani started off Moloch Dow just to show that you can actually make a Dow these days and that's okay. The idea is like if you can make a Dow about literally the most ridiculous thing, which is like the most basic shared quality of different people, which is like people that have their shared first names. Like that's all we share is our first name. But if you if we can make a DAO around that, you can make a DAO around anything. Kind of in the same way that Constitution DAO is like showing the world like with the power of crypto is it kind of goes in that same vein. It's like it doesn't take that much to make a DAO. And like, what is the mission of Dave DAO? We're not really sure. Probably just good vibes. But like, one of the things that we have in the roadmap is um, uh, meet a Dave, where every single day a bot will pair you up with another Dave and Dave DAO, and it'll pair you up in in DMs. And you just meet a, meet a Dave for the day. And so, like, all right, like, the bot comes in. It's like, all right, here's here's your paired Dave. Like, say hi to Dave. And you guys meet. And then you go back into the Discord, into the channel to verify the fact that you guys met. And each one of you sends a message saying, like, yes, I met this Dave. We had a good time. Here's, like, a fun fact about this Dave. And it's just, like, Dave's getting to know other Dave's just for the sheer, just, like, memory of it. And it's, like, just the perfect level of meme, but also taking it seriously to, like, actually, like, bootstrap this thing. And so... Like the the idea is like the whole purpose of Dave Dow is to spin up every other name Dow that exists, and so like if people are coming into crypto and they're asking like I don't know what to do like where do I go I want to, I know this crypto thing is powerful like what what Dow should I join? So the answer to the question what Dow should you join is like well what's your name like do you what, what's your first name because go find the Dow that's relevant to your first name and like learn about how that Dow works and you can kind of get like a real understanding of just like this is a DAO in its most basic element, right? Like it's not bankless DAO that has the mission of, you know, growing bankless media and culture. It's just your first name. And it's kind of can kind of be like the tutorial island for DAOs. Yeah, that is hilarious. The whole having a bot uh, introduce uh, one Dave to another Dave. I mean, it's it's so smart. It's so funny. But like, that's that's another thing about this whole space. It's like it doesn't have to be serious, right? Uh, all the time, right? We can have fun and uh, pull money together and buy the Constitution or meet, make Daves meet other Daves. Um, did you did you get involved in that uh, Constitution DAO at all? 
No, no, I did not. No, oh, I did not. Wait, one more thing on Dave Dow. When we, we pulled like four or five Daves into a call together to like actually like plan this thing out and figure out how to, how to, uh, uh, like organized Dave Dow and it was absolutely hilarious because we kept on referring to each other like hey Dave can like and then we realized like oh everything everyone on here is Dave so we had to actually start calling each other by our last names because you can't call each other Dave because like you don't know who you're talking to oh man that's funny yeah yeah we had a lot of index guys who were uh, uh, involved in the constitution Dow uh, or, or worked on it uh, in marketing standpoint or, or just on the core team in general but yeah, I mean, it, it can be fun, like Dave Dow and the Constitution Dow. But another thing that, I, I don't know, just kind of made me excited about the Constitution Dow was just the amount of coordination and work that that core team was able to do over, like, such a short period of time. If anything, you know, even if we don't buy the Constitution with this Dow, it just made me very, I guess, bullish just on Dows in general and the ability for us to use these Web3 tools to do almost anything, it feels like. Like, I feel like this, the whole thing about a DAO, you know, and I think DAOs kind of get a, can get a bad name sometimes if you go way far back, you know, the DAO. And I think um, I've, I've talked to people in my uh, meat space job at the bank who uh, confuse all DAOs with the DAO, which is, which is really weird that they even know like that little bit uh, of information and are able to take that little bit of information and just screw it up. So so royally, um, but yeah, I just I just think that that's just really exciting and and makes me very bullish just in general. Um, so 100%. what what else? Uh, we're kind of running up on time a little bit, but I just want to know like what else in the space? Like I don't know. Do you want the audience to know that you're like paying attention to, or what should we be looking out for on the horizon as ETH moves on towards? the merge and then eventually to, to sharding and the layer twos, just like, what do you think we should keep our eyes out for? There's always been like this layer one war throughout crypto, right? There's, it's been the layer one wars for the Bitcoin had the Bitcoin wars where it got hard forked a thousand times. Obviously Bitcoin came out as the winner. There's always been like the, the layer one wars for smart contracts, which smart contract is going to win. I think eventually we were going through the weekly roll-up today with me and Ryan, and we went through, like, the coin market cap snapshots of every year since, like, 2016. And, like, all the coins change after Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's, like, 20, 2016, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then a bunch of random coins. 2017, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and a bunch of random coins. 2018, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and a bunch of random coins. And that pattern has continued to this day. And I think as this Layer 2 ecosystem around Ethereum, we might finally... Stop seeing this goddamn layer one war and have that be replaced by the L2 wars. Because the reason why the layer one wars work is because there's just an insane amount of upside possible with spinning up a layer one because of the two other major layer ones that have worked, which are Bitcoin and Ethereum. So EOS got funded because of the competition to be an ETH killer, right? Same thing with Solana. And any other like Bitcoin fork got funded because of the promise of being an L1. At some point, people are going to trade that fight of an L1 and start fighting in the L2s. Because it's way easier to spin up an L2 and, and instantiate a token into it than it is an L1. Ethereum has already done the work. And so I think this energy of this L1 war is actually going to start to get absorbed by Layer 2 wars. And I definitely think there's some sort of room for like just an NFT or not an NFT. And I was about to say NFT mania. I'm used to saying NFT mania for a layer two mania because so many people, the financial incentives to spin up a layer two, like I think we're starting to watch it 
right now. And as soon as somebody like Arbitrum or Optimism or ZK uh, Sync like issues a layer two token, we're watching it right now with Immutable, which has its own layer two. Like Immutable token price is has, it's like it's start it's coming out at like twelve billion dollars right now. The financial incentives to spin up a layer two is absolutely crazy, and the market hasn't yet figured that out. I don't think, but I definitely think it will. Uh, so that's kind of a phenomenon that I, I think is ahead of us. Yeah, I agree there. And if you're listening to this and you're not on Arbitrum or Optimism or using the Hop or Connect protocol, if if this ENS airdrop has taught you anything, is that everything is going to have a token eventually. Mm-hmm. In my mind, um, even Bankless has a token. I mean, look at that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I mean, I'm on I'm on all of those, and I've used Connect, and I'm staking on Hop. You know, and I think you know once Arbitrum and optimism, you know, start, you know, doing like avalanche rush type uh, farming rewards to get out there. I think that that's when layer two mania is really just going to take off. Um, I totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Well, we're, we're up on time right now, David. Appreciate you coming out and visiting with us. So just one last question is where can people go to find out more about you and Bankless? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Trustless State. That's three S's in the middle. Uh, Bankless is at Bankless HQ. Uh, you can also subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, everyone loves the Friday weekly roll-ups that come out every single Friday morning. Uh, so uh, watch the roll-up with your Friday morning coffee. And then also subscribe to the newsletter, uh, which is at newsletter.bankless.com. Yeah, newsletter.banklesshq.com. All right, perfect. David, thanks again for being here with us today. Everyone who's listening in the audience, thanks for being here. This is being recorded And so I'll get this over to my audio engineer, Nakamomo, who does an excellent job every time. And we'll get this published sometime next week. Thanks again, David. Thank you, Mr. Texan. (laughs) All right, bye.